0: fashion history with american duchess your podcast home for all things related to costuming sewing and costume history we want to give a shout out to dandy wellington for his generosity in letting us use his music greenhouse stomp in each episode if you like his music you can find dandy on facebook instagram spotify and itunes as well as jazzing up the streets of new york city almost every night all right now let's get on with the show Welcome to this episode of Fashion History with American Duchess. I am one of your hosts, Abby Cox. And I'm your other host, Lauren Stoll. And today we are here talking with our favorite corset maker, Cynthia Setchie. Yes, Cynthia. We're obsessed with (laughs) Cynthia. So um Cynthia, for those who may not be familiar with you. Would you be so kind as to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do and what you make?
1: Sure. So I own and run Red Threaded, which is a historical corset business and also a theatrical costume business. So it's kind of a two-faceted business. Um, I started in the theatrical world. That's where my degree is. That's where my training is. And um, I got into the historical world selling corsets to reenactors, interpreters living history sites, that kind of thing. So I have experience on both the retail retail side side and and then the contract contract theater theater side with Broadway theaters, off-Broadway theaters, regional theaters, which is a totally different thing. They're two completely different worlds, but they do overlap. The the Venn diagram (laughs) overlaps somewhat. (laughs) And we do all of this from Colorado. We ship stuff all over the world, and I employ three to five people depending on how busy we are.
0: Wow, that's awesome! Three to five people. She's got a bigger operation than
1: us. <laughs> we are making everything in house. You know, you guys. Eat. We make three to five people. You probably have a bigger operation if you count the entire production.
2: Yeah.
0: That's awesome. So, so I'm always so inspired whenever we get to talk to Cynthia. Yeah. Because it makes me just. Like, yeah, girl power, business, woo! So Cynthia's been on on the
2: show before, Um, but this time we're going to talk about a question that we get a lot. Cynthia, you probably get this question a lot too. Um, It's not just one question, really, it's a subject. So how do you, let's say you want to start a costume sewing business, how do you price yourself? Where do you start with that? Um, This seems to be something that a lot of people are interested in, Uh, so we thought we'd talk to somebody who did it successfully.
0: And that would
2: be oh. you. You are the expert in
1: this. Well, it's hard.
2: So
1: <laughs> I think first of all, art- artists have a hard time being okay with the idea of making money for their work. And I, I do consider myself an artist or a craftsperson, like a maker. People who make things in a creative way, I think it can be difficult to accept the idea that it's okay to make money. Like, that's fine. But on the other hand, the, um, the industry, both arts and sewing especially, and theater, is so chronically underpaid that it can be hard to combat that as well. So there's an internal thing, but and the externals are so against you. So, figuring out how much to charge for something can be really difficult, especially because there's also underpricing. There's, a, there's many factors at work here, but sewing, being a woman's profession for so long, that's part of it. It's been chronically underpaid for 100 years, 200 years, more probably. Um, so, we're fighting an uphill battle. We've come a long way, actually actually. Um, but that's tricky.
0: Yeah. So when you were, cause your education, this is something I was thinking about when it comes to this question and and how you, when you, when I see you talk about this question on, on Facebook and social media, the, you come at it from not only just a business perspective as a business owner, but you also seem to come about it as someone who was taught what's what in university. Um, yes. And you went to the North Carolina School for the Arts, correct? Did mm-hmm. I say that correctly? Yes. And so were you taught about how to price yourself and your labor and what your work was worth? And did you have those conversations in school? We did. Um,
1: not so much about your specific, your your own work, but I took a class called Costume Shop Management, and that really set me up for success with the business. I didn't get a chance to take a standard business class or financial class, anything like that, which I, like, really wish I had because that would have been super helpful. Um, I always had required classes during the time that the grad-level class, they only had a grad-level class on that topic, was offered. So I didn't get to take the business for the artist class. But the shop management class, we actually sat down, we were given... um, And the the, um, professor who taught this class, she has managed costume shops across the country. She's managed at the Guthrie. She's managed at big time regional theaters. So she knows her stuff. What she did is she gave us a theoretical costume shop. She said, here's your budget. Here are the shows your your theater is doing. Here's the space you have. Here is your setup budget. Here's your labor budget. Do your hiring. Figure out how much each one of those costumes is going to cost for that production, figure out what you're gonna rent, what you're gonna buy, what you guys are gonna make, and buy everything you need for a shop. So, you know, stools. I woke up the the day before this project was due and I forgot about stools for at the cutting tables and like chairs and stuff. And I was like, oh no, I gotta order stools. (laughs) I gotta add that to my spreadsheet. But working through that project and seeing how much your staff, your theoretical staff, was going to need to make and how much time it was going to take to make all of those costumes really helped me figure out how much this stuff really did cost, because unless you're working as a shop manager with a budget, if you're working on any of the lower positions in a costume shop, you don't have direct access to the numbers. You don't know how much things cost exactly. Um, so that was incredibly helpful, especially with starting the business, because it, even though it wasn't quite the same thing, it was, it was similar enough. The other thing is that I had a faculty that were very um, positive about charging what you're worth. They did not really push us towards unpaid internships. It was rare for one of my classmates to take an unpaid internship. We, for the most part, were working paid internships or paid mid-level positions in summer theater on our summers off between classes. And there was definitely Um, a positive, you know, don't work for free kind of attitude. So that helped a lot, for sure.
0: Yeah, I think having, coming from my background in, in museum world where free internships back in the early 2000s was standard, like the concept of being so protective of yourself i guess and proud of your abilities and your skills to be able to say i will only accept a paid internship that was not something i ever considered um and i think that did absolutely have an effect on on how i viewed my skills and how much pay i would or would not accept um so i do think yeah that must have really 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 laid some excellent groundwork. And that's what I've always seen from you too, is that your education laid... A really solid foundation for you to stand up and say, this is what I'm worth. Um.
1: Yeah, I think it's so much about the culture of the, the field you're going into and the place you're studying at. Um, School of the Arts has a fairly competitive um, sort of ethos. There, there's a, a nickname out there called North Carolina School of the Assholes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh both earned and perhaps not earned. Um, but it I think it speaks to the fact that we like ask for what we're worth. We tend to ask for what we're worth and and to go for things and and be fairly competitive about it. Like North Carolina School of the Arts has won the Tech Olympics at USIDT for like fifteen years running or something, and everyone's
2: like, Ugh, why? <laughs> this is really interesting because I I came out of illustration animation program. I don't have a costume background. But when I popped out, I didn't get a studio job, and I was freelancing. So I do have that experience. And and asking for what you're worth um, was really terrifying. And you yes. get, I got a lot of pushback on it. Um, people would be appalled when they saw my price, And it's not like I was asking for a lot of money. And I ran into this when I tried to sew for others as well, is just working out the hours. I thought it would take me and always yeah. undercutting myself I would still get pushback from people so oh wow that's wow are you kidding that's so expensive or like oh you're having a laugh or wow I can buy that cheaper and it's like well yeah you're asking for a handmade item uh, and I did undercut myself perpetually and it gave me a really bad feeling about it and I will never ever do that again um, and when I say that I mean so for other people so <laughs> you starting out with demand. Demanding what you're worth. Must have taken a lot of guts to do that. Did you ever feel like uh, shaky about it? Like, oh no, I'll never get this job and I really need it if I don't lower my price. It's still terrifying. I sent out a bid today that I'm like,
1: I don't know. <laughs> I might not hear back from them, um, but it, it costs what it costs. And I... I don't want to say that like I never undercut myself because I'm probably I still do it. I've always done it on projects here and there. When I first started out, I was really undercutting myself, but I also had much lower overhead and costs and there's a difference between being, you know, 21 and just out of college and you're living in a $400 a month apartment.
2: <laughs>
1: Where's that? <laughs> in Salem. I know. Actually, it was 450 at that point because they charged an extra 50 bucks a month when I moved in with my boyfriend. <laughs> Jeez. I know, like, I was able to undercut at that point, not that that was a good choice, um, but but it's definitely been a process, but I think having that foundation of, like, don't work for free, your time is money, your time is valuable, you have a finite amount, watch it, keep track of it, that's all you've got, that, that helped a lot.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: So, if you were, and I'm sure you've had this, so now is, like, the chance to lay it all out there, when you receive that email email from the young costume grad who wants to start an Etsy shop and they ask how to do it like we get this all the time in fact we got an email about it I think I said something the other day um with this specific request do you have a specific formula that you use to to gauge how much you're going to charge um someone so back when you started your Etsy shop, let's say, because obviously your, your wages and, and everything now with red threaded it's a slightly different scenario because you're a much larger operation, but as an individual, as a Mm -hmm. single person, do you have a formula that you would use to calculate a fair wage for yourself and a fair cost for yourself?
1: Yeah, what I would do, um, I started this very early when I started the Etsy shop, and I will say that the figures I was calculating on were very low, like the hourly wages I was calculating on, I look back now and I'm like, oh, girl. (laughs) But um, what I would do is I would break the garment down into steps. So, and you can go as, as detailed as you want. What, what this requires though, is it requires you to track your time. You have to know how long that thing is going to take you. The only way to understand that is by doing it multiple times to kind of get a sense. And if you sew long enough, you kind of know like, okay, well that type of sleeve is probably going to take me about this amount of time. So you can break it down all the way to like cutting. Basting, sewing the sleeve, adding trim, um, hourly, and then I would multiply that times an hourly rate to come up with a ballpark of what my time was going to be. You also have to consider materials, of course. Now here is where that falls apart. A lot of, I see this on Etsy a lot too, like in the forums and in like handmade, small business type groups. They're like, oh, we'll just do you know time plus materials, but what that doesn't take into account is growth of your business. And that's why I think so many little startup single-person businesses fail is because, yeah, okay, so you've covered your time with that calculation, but your sewing machine just broke. And where's that money coming from? You don't have it. That That money covered your time. That time's gone. That money is gone. Where are you going to get business cards? It's all that overhead stuff and and the idea of making a profit that I think you really need to think about right out of the gate. If I could pay more attention, if I could go back in time, I would tell myself to pay.
0: It's always like, just add an extra, like few bucks onto it, even if you are worried about it. So how do you deal with, um,
2: cause I come up against this still, you've calculated out the time and the materials and you've added, you've padded it a bit to cover your overheads and it's just, the garment is, like, way more than you think it should be, that you think people will pay for it. Then I don't sell it. You don't sell it? You just don't even go there?
1: I don't even go there. Or I figure out a way to make it cheaper. Like, like right now, we're working on a 1690s corset style. And that is a complicated era. I mean, I've been doing this for a while, and that one is tricky. And, and the time studies on it, I'm like oh I don't I don't know how we're gonna so what I've done is I've actually removed some complication from the style and I didn't necessarily want to do that but weirdly by removing two tabs and shortening the tabs like an inch across the board that actually brought it back in line with the rest of our stuff and and the time studies are still coming out a little long but at the same time I know that um with practice my team will get the time down um they usually can knock a new style down by about 30% after they get really practiced at it and uh, have gone through a few. So um, 30%. Yeah. Is yeah. Massive. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, that brings up a great point, though, when it comes to people sewing for themselves or not for themselves, but like small business, like Etsy sellers and stuff. I think one of the things that has always deterred me is that you can't get the flow, and that gets the speed. You know, if like for you guys, you make the you make those same corsets, you standardize the pattern. It is straightforward. Your step one is always the same. Step two is always the same. But when you're trying to sew as an individual person, the R and D that's oh there, my the research and design. Even if you're using a commercial pattern, just cutting out the pattern, you can't even just pull it from stock. I don't even think like do people even take that into consideration when they when they try to price what they're doing
1: they should but it's so hard that's why people who do 100 custom work that's incredible to me because that is so tricky every single project you're reinventing the wheel you have a lot of communication with the client you have to source materials like you're going to spend an hour like googling the right taffeta and the right color or more (laughs) um i've had i've had custom gown orders that Take as much sort of babysitting and um, time, not, not the making time, but the, the development and the patterning and the research, as that they can take as much time as an entire Broadway chorus from like from the like email and, and admin side of things. So I think the thing that would be great for um, for like custom small makers. So, so especially I'm thinking about right now, I'm thinking about corset makers who are doing custom work 100% of the time. <laughs> If we can start thinking more in terms of art and brand value and not so much in terms of time, if we can add value in the custom aspect, charge and charge more because it is a unique artistic thing, then it takes it away from the minutia of like, Is it gonna take me an hour to set that sleeve, or two hours? I don't know. Am I gonna charge them five hundred and twenty or five hundred and thirty-five? What am I gonna do? (laughs) Yeah, that I think that would help, and I I see a bit of a move towards that, and and we're trying to move towards that in the in the custom world, and I think that will help.
0: Yeah. This is just so fascinating to me, you know, just thinking about all of this and all the different factors that come in, and the idea of, like you say, it's it's an art piece basically. It's not, and maybe this goes into the whole sexism and misogyny that is in the costuming and sewing world and the businesses of it's woman's work. It's easy. Our grandmothers mm-hmm. did it. Well, my grandma used to make all of my clothes, or my mom made all my clothes. Yeah, yeah. like no one. Very few people acknowledge the skill that that actually is that those women a, had and they play it down so they assume that everyone can do it and that it is it's the ease factor and they, they take the art out of what you're doing they take the creativity yes. out of what you're doing
2: yeah it's also the consumerism part of it is, well I could buy that at H&M for fifty bucks I was like well then why are you asking me to do that for you I yeah. know <laughs> so, I can buy that off Amazon for
1: 150 and I'm like please do
2: that sounds great yeah it's, it's how we value clothing today is we don't value clothing today. We yeah. know, they're not investment pieces. Very few people are willing to put the money into something, especially if it's not an everyday item like a suit or a dress it's a costume and yet those are the most complex and specialized and you. and i think that's where moving it uh, into more of an
0: art what
1: realm will help it's not so much like oh i'm buying a shirt it's like oh i'm buying an art piece that is wearable and i think that kind of branding twist can help for custom work um, it's kind of a funny dichotomy right because on one hand we have People saying, like, oh, my grandma could sew. Everyone could sew. Everyone can sew. But then we have the same people sometimes saying, like, oh, I don't know how to sew. Oh, nobody knows how to sew anymore. Oh, I wish they still taught home ec, you know? So that's kind of funny. Right?
0: So when it comes to that, because I know you've done some research on that, um, and we were part of a larger discussion when a particular historic site uh, posted a job that was basically two jobs, and their rate was, yeah. 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 Inappropriate. Yeah. It was, it was extremely inappropriate for, for what they were asking. Um, but you've done some looking over the whole, the whole um, I guess, industry for costuming. And do you think it's getting better? Do you think it's getting worse? Where do you think it's going right now? And do you have any advice for bright young things filled with hopes and dreams? That's <laughs> hey, the oh. in, in the industry?
1: Oh, that's a whole thing. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Well, what I'll say is that so so in prepping for this talk, last because I don't look at job posting websites that often, there's no reason for me to to do that right now. Um so I went to one of the job sites that I used to look at religiously all the time when I was trying to find work in the recession. And yes, there are some posts, it's it's so varied, actually, because there are some posts that are pretty decent. I'm like, okay, yeah, that's that's a pretty nice rate for you a know, summer theater draper with housing provided. There's no benefits, but it's just a short-term gig. Like, that's pretty good. That one has gone up a few hundred bucks a month even, or a or contract, since when I was looking. But there are some places that are posting the same rates I was seeing 10 years ago. Yes and I caught myself thinking like almost thinking like oh yeah that seems about right and I'm like no that seems right for 2008.
0: Yeah and when they could charge those wages because it was at least a job and everyone was so hungry they didn't care what they were making at that point in time.
1: And there's been such a long history of underpay especially in summer theater um my the year before my last year of college i took a draping position it was great i had a lovely time i made 350 dollars a week and, and it was a good contract that was good i was one of the most well-paid people on their staff. Oh Jesus. my god! And you know, oh, it's it was forty hours a week. The costume shop was the only shop that actually sort of adhered to that. One of the girls in the scene shop actually was injured because they were asked to work essentially thirty six hours straight. My goodness! Yeah, it's it's stuff like that that's just it's amazing that it still happening. Um, there has been a shift towards better though. Large theaters in the United States have either, um, proactively or they've been called out by like their state employment board or, you know, that kind of thing for, for violations. They have made shifts towards paying better, but better is like, you're going to make more than a hundred dollars a week as an intern kind of thing. You know, better isn't like, we're going to give you a super great living wage. Um, So yeah, I saw some that were good, but the most interesting post that I saw, and, and it's so rare to see a job post in the costume field for more than $20 an hour. I'll just put that out there. It's rare to see more than 20 an hour for any position. Benefits or no benefits. That's just, like you don't see it that often on on public postings. Now, if you're going into academia or that kind of thing, yes, perhaps, maybe. Um, but, and I'm not going to name names here, but a regional theater that is that is nationally known has a post-up right now for a draper. And a draper is essentially a pattern. They, they make all the patterns for the garments they're assigned. Some shops will have one draper. Some will have several. And um, so this person is artistic. They are creative, they are skilled, they are technically trained on how to make patterns and fit them to a body. They are required to have a BFA, masters preferred. They manage multiple people, they oversee the making of these costumes. So they are a manager, they are an artist, and they are a technically skilled professional. This job, so this job post that I saw last night. I first, I was like, okay, well, that's kind of low, but, oh, look, they have, like, pretty nice benefits. That's good. That does offset it. Okay, fine. But then, out of curiosity, I went and I looked up um, the cost of living in the city that this post is in, and here is what I found. This was, like, shocking, except not shocking, because I I knew it was going to be this. Um, So, to qualify for a median valued home with no other monthly expenses, so not a car payment, not student loans, nothing, you would have to make three times this posted salary to afford a median valued home in the city that this job posting is in. If you add $300 in student loan payments to that, it jumps to four times that salary, so, like, we're not hitting cost of living at all. And part of that is the assumption that has happened for decades, and, and I've, I've witnessed this in, in costume shops across the country. There is an assumption that your husband will make the real money.
2: You know
0: something, yeah.
2: Yeah, I've heard that one before. I don't at work in a costume shop. Oh my god. This this makes me ragey. I read a lot about, you know, why aren't millennials buying homes? Why aren't millennials buying diamonds? Millennials killed American cheese. All that bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like... Yeah. We do love avocados, though. <laughs> we do. We, we yeah. do. Yeah. They're, they're very healthy. Uh, but it's like... <laughs> Maybe that's the reason why. And there's this interesting thing happening with money right now. Um, I'm sure you've felt this as an employer, and I have to real talk with Cynthia and Lauren. Um, <laughs> that the value of money is is decreasing at an alarming rate, and the cost of living yes. is increasing at an alarming rate. And so, a salary that felt good, and you know, like a, a good you know forty five thousand dollars a year, it felt like a good salary. Until that you, that doesn't get you very far anymore. It get you far anymore. I was not like, in, in most of the country. country. Yeah. Even here in Reno, it's, I'm looking at the cost of living and I'm like, wow, in the last two years, everything has shot up to where that's not enough money anymore. But that still feels to me like a lot of money coming out of, you know, we all graduated into the recession when we were desperate for anything.
1: Right. Anything better than a Starbucks barista job was like, oh my gosh, maybe I'll actually be able to
2: afford Netflix. Hooray. Yeah. I mean, I had a skilled job. Uh, with benefits, and I couldn't afford to live in the city where I, where I was. I had to move. Yeah. Yes. I had to give up the job and move because I, they, they did not pay me enough Working full time to live there, anywhere there, yeah. even with yeah. a roommate. Um, so it, we all we all have kind of a story like that. Um, so to have jobs still like that, and with that particular historic site museum that put that very controversial job up, the the what it boiled down to after the anger that came with a lot of that is well they're either gonna hire somebody who can do the job the way they want, or they're not. The fact is, is they're not. They're not going to find yeah, that person, good. because the job listing was like three pages long for the most pathetic amount of money that nobody could live on.
0: Well, the, going back to the whole Starbucks uh, barista thing, you'd be better off being a Starbucks barista, because at yes. least you get health insurance, college classes, paid. And you don't have that
1: laundry list of responsibilities that's impossible to meet, my goodness. It's going to be
2: way less stressful. It's not gonna follow you home no <laughs> exactly so, so for those wanting to get into this and we've Abby particularly talked a lot uh, to a lot of people about the museum field um, and when when she does it in person you can kind of see the faces in the audience drop <laughs> <laughs> People are going to be passionate about these art forms. So what would you, what's kind of your overarching advice since you bucked the trend for those who want to get into sewing on commission or sewing for for money, essentially. Hmm. What you want to say on commission? I think, here's
1: the thing. If we all raise our prices, if we all ask for what we were, are worth, if everyone asked for what they were worth in this industry, then people would have to pay it. So, if you are radical and you ask for what you're worth, you will find the clients who respect that about you. It it will be hard, but it really beats underpricing yourself for years and establishing yourself as being cheap or affordable, and then making no money and burning out on the one thing that you know how to do and the one thing that you love. So... If we all ask for more, it helps everyone across the board. Conversely, underpricing really just kind of sticks it to everyone else is trying to make a living at this. So so that's, that's another soapbox is that when I hear people say, oh, I just do it for the love. I don't need to make any money at this. I say, okay, but I actually do need to make money at this. And a lot of people do need to make money at this. It's okay if you also make money at this. You can love something and make money at it. And if you also ask for what it's worth, you are helping the woman who's trying to feed her kids off of this. So that's something to keep in mind. I think sometimes it can be easier to to be inspired by an altruistic, I'm trying to help other people kind of thing, than like, oh, I need to do this for myself. I can't ask for that for myself. Ask for it for every seamstress in the country.
0: I think that is that's really, I think, very powerful way to put it. You know, the whole concept of I don't want to ask for money because we as women are, are not taught, we're taught to not ask for money. I mean, that's why we're Absolutely. always horrifically underpaid compared to our male counterparts. Because what happens if they say no? I don't want them to say no. I don't want to be rejected.
2: That's yeah. usually what comes right. in your yeah. mind. I don't want to be seen as, as
1: asking for too much or making too much of a fuss or, yeah. I think it's, I, I watched this firsthand um, at the, the Colorado Shakespeare Festival. Uh, and I will f- I'll speak frankly about this one because I I worked there. They all know me. I like them. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, and don't know remember. who I'm talking about anyway. Um, so when I applied for a position there, the the salary for the Draper was very low. Um, it was on the low end of kind of the middle-ish low <laughs> for summer theater. I took the job because we wanted to move to Colorado, and I was 22, and I didn't have a lot of responsibility. <laughs> like I just, all right, I'll take this job. that's fine. That's low, but that's what it is. Um, I really have to hand it to my manager who I worked with for the next six, five or six years there. So she had a hard time asking for increases for herself. Mm. But I asked for an increase for me and for the rest of the staff. And to make that happen, that also included an increase for her. Mm. If you ask for, if you if you want to give the person below you a raise, that can get you a raise, too. Like, that can help you advocate for yourself. It can be almost easier to advocate for someone else in sort of a roundabout kind of way. Um, and I have to hand it to her. She doubled my salary by the end. Jeez. Which was
0: incredible. Like, that doesn't happen. <laughs> But that, yeah, that's, that, it's a great example, because what I'm seeing right now is <laughs> this really obscure, like, organ Trail circling the wagons, and it's like the seamstresses and the machines are circling around, <laughs> and, you know, the <laughs> long wagon's gonna be the one that dies of dysentery and snake bites and can't ford the river, but, like, when the wagons circle around each other, you know, it's, it's better for everybody.
1: Yes, and I mean, isn't that what unions are? Yeah. <laughs> With, this is not a new concept. If we if we talk larger and broader, you know, we've got like IGL, like the Women's Union, the Ladies Garment Workers Union. We've got the Theatrical Union. So that's a larger scale of this, but it's the same concept of like if we if we consider the group, it can be easier to advocate for the self.
0: Yeah, exactly, and it works out better for everyone. So just to kind of not really double the advocate, but just a thought with what you were saying of the people who go. Well, I don't need to make money doing this. I'm just doing it for fun. And you're very fair counter of, but I need to make money doing this. Or that lady over there who's selling the same thing that you're selling, she's trying to feed her kids. She needs to make money. In that situation, if, if that person is not comfortable charging what they're worth and what they should be charging themselves, would it almost be better to, to then be like, well, then why don't you just do it for free? <laughs> do you get what I'm talking <laughs> about? Where it's like, well, look, you're charging it. You're charging people wages that that don't do anyone else any good so why don't you just take it to the other extreme and just be like well then just do it for fun and don't charge any money
1: Right. That's, it's tricky. That's a tricky thing. I mean, I do, I do talk to people who say they only do it for materials, but then there are also, and, but the way to do that is to be very upfront with the person you're making it for. Like, this is a like favor or a trade or, you know, I'm, I'm just including materials. That's hard. I mean, <laughs> it's tricky to, to speak to to. The underpricers in that regard because everyone's going to set their prices how they they feel is best but it does make it harder for everyone else actually the very first thing i listed on etsy i I think it was like some vintage repro dress or something i don't even quite remember Um, and i listed it for really cheap because i was like oh i don't know i guess it's like kind of this much for a dress at the store (laughs) I was uh, I think I was like 18 in college and a friend of mine who also runs a very successful uh, lingerie and corsetry business she does much more like fine lingerie stuff um not the historical she was very, very frank with me. And she said, when you price that low, you hurt everyone else, including me. And I take that personally. And I was like, oh, Damn. wow. Okay. And I, I jacked that thing up twice the price. <laughs> <laughs> but I really appreciated having someone say that to me.
0: I, I can see that, and I think hopefully for those listening who might be considering this, hopefully listening to you talk about this sort of thing and, and what little experience Lauren and I have in this field, hopefully this will help people realize that... It's about the bigger picture. It's about the community as a whole. Even if you're not comfortable charging a certain amount for yourself, don't think about it that way if it makes you uncomfortable. Think about, you know, the single mom who lives in the other part of the country or a different country entirely who's trying to, to feed her family and take care of her family through this Etsy business. Don't do it for you. Do it for her. You know, put that wage out there so she can put that wage out there. You know, even if you don't need the money, it's, yeah, you're not doing anyone any services by trying to undercut your competitor or your perceived competitor.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. I also feel, I feel very strongly that there is enough out there for everyone. I think that so much of our worry and anxiety comes from the worry that there's not enough. What if there aren't any more orders? I mean, I joke about that. I'm like, oh, what if that's the last course that I ever sell?
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, because Lauren and I will still always buy from you.
1: (laughs) What if there aren't any more... Like, what if there isn't enough? What if there isn't enough... (sighs) customer base or, or money or, but I, I think that there is. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think that if we trust that there is, that that can really open up opportunities. Absolutely.
0: I mean, this is a, I'm going to be frank, this is very woo woo of me and Laura might even know where I'm going with this, but there's in woo-woo communities, <laughs> as it were, you know, people who, who view the world and the universe in a very different way. The concept of money and abundance is nothing more than a concept. That there is plenty of abundance in this world, there's plenty of money in this world. There's plenty of everything in this world mm-hmm. so long as you're open to it and you don't operate in the fear of there being no money because when you become so focused and you put your energy on the fear of there not being enough on yeah. the lack of abundance that's when you encounter the lack of abundance but if you go there is enough there is plenty of people there are plenty of customers there's plenty of money they just print that shit off anyways like you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm the I think anyway Debatable.
1: it's like raising your prices i mean i've, I've raised prices incrementally and then i still sell the same amount like it doesn't it doesn't drop off there and i have talked to other corset makers who do more custom bespoke type stuff who have doubled their prices and they get this, either the same amount of orders or slightly fewer but they're making more money for less work so it's that's an even better situation so there is enough you just have to trust that there is, and that's the hard part, isn't
0: it? well it's operating in in the space of trust and openness instead of operating in fear. Because if you operate in fear, that's when you start making those mistakes of, well, I can't raise my prices because X, Y, and Z is gonna happen. I won't, I won't get the orders. I have to pay rent. It's, it is really, really terrifying. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but you have to have a certain amount of like cojones to be able to do anything like this. Um, because if that was always the fear. And it's like, it is like go to good places to work that are steady jobs and you don't have to operate in that that entrepreneurial of like fear of. Well, I mean, that that gets into like working the day job
2: while you build up your, you know, your social media profiles and your reach and you build up your client base. And, and that, that was definitely our reality, Chris and my reality Uh, for several years after starting American Duchess as the shoe company, uh, we were still doing. Freelance work and other work um, until we finally kind of like finally can cut the cord and we're making enough to be able to live on. Um, that's also perfectly okay. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yes. And, and I would even recommend that for those just getting started because it's very hard to just pop onto the scene and suddenly there you are. Even yeah. when you have a successful Kickstarter campaign or successful crowdfunding or you, you are selling stuff, there's business dynamics in there where you have to make enough inventory and enough sales per day to be able to keep the business going and also take enough money for yourself to live on and that's that that boils down to math
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. oh that's another pricing thing that i that i point out to people because talking to some you know someone who's trying to start out their etsy business or whatever it's okay have you done the math on how much money you need to make per year to survive.
0: And have you incorporated taxes as being self-employed?
1: Uh-huh. And all the costs. Now, have you done the math on how many of those items you want to make that you can make in a day? How much are you charging for them? Does that add up to that number? If it doesn't add up to that number, you need to change something about either your item or your process or your materials or your entire, like, business scope. But if you can't make enough of the thing to cover the cost of living and like what you need to make to survive, then there is a problem with the making of the thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of people don't do that math. They're like, oh, you know, I, I've sold like a couple of things this week. Great. I would love to do this full time. Can you actually make that many of those things?
2: Right. Well, often it's, it is the seamstress or the, the maker who is the bottleneck on that. Um, yes. A lot of people don't think about scale. Now, you scaled in, in a stateside way where you have an atelier and you're making things in house with seamstresses, seamstresses that work for you. We scaled in a different way because there was no way we would make enough shoes and we didn't have the professional skills in order to do that. So there was always the, how do you, what happens if you're really, really successful? You can't make things fast enough to make enough money to live. And so what's your plan? A lot of people don't think big enough. They don't look far enough down the road to if that happens. They're just desperate for the first sale, the second sale, but it really, really bears thinking about, and as you say, sit down and do the math and get a real picture of how much you need to make or that you can individually reasonably make and how much money that's going to bring in in net profit net
1: yes net net yeah don't go look at your etsy gross sales and go (laughs) woohoo (laughs) that does not give you, uh, you know, if I go look at my, well, not now, because we stopped selling um, like stock items on Etsy. But, you know, last year, if I went and looked at my Etsy or my Shopify, you know, total gross sales, it's like, oh, wow. But that's not a helpful picture at all. It doesn't show you. The cost that went into them. Um, I see this. This is kind of the season when people start freaking out on the Etsy forums (laughs) because they've looked at their numbers from last year and they've added up their Etsy fees and their supply fees and their shipping and they're going, shit! I didn't make any
0: money. Yeah, Yeah. and it comes down to you're almost end up ending up paying for the privilege to own a side like a small business. Yeah, it it that's Brutal facts.
2: I mean, like when we look at, we have our accounting done, but when we look at our, our revenue, our gross profit, our net profit, like we spend, we spend like seventy thousand dollars a year in shipping, paying for shipping, yeah. USPS.
1: That's about a uh, two Broadway show shipping budget. Yeah,
2: it's that's that's not the freight to get that stuff here to then put it in a box which we also pay for the boxes to then put the label on it to go out usbs and that also doesn't re- include returns and exchanges and going back out again i mean it's all of that stuff it's a real wake-up call yeah. when I look at that's it.
1: another thing to think about for for anyone who's trying to get into this you might think oh if i make a lot of little things they'll sell more and that'll be great but keep in mind that everything requires packaging, photographing, shipping, all of that stuff. And it's pretty much the same whether the thing is selling for $20 or $200 or $2000. So, you're going to make more money and spend and save time if you if you do, you know, the like if you sell 20 things at $20, that's a lot of admin time and shipping time. If you sell one thing at $2,000 or whatever, it's way less. So keep that in mind that like doing lots of little things isn't always the most feasible option. If you can do fewer things for more, that might be a better way to go. It it totally depends on your business model and what thing you're making,
2: but but it's something to keep in mind for sure. Sometimes people go that way because it feels easy and quick like oh I'll just bust out five cloth diapers you know today and that'll be great um and it's the easy route it's the lazy route
1: yeah yeah it's the less scary route because it's scarier for someone to buy a two hundred dollar thing from you. Oh my gosh, that person trusted me two hundred dollars worth. Oh, I hope this goes well. You know, there's there's all of that involved in it too.
2: This I think this can go. This conversation could go for <laughs> probably days. I love talking about business with Cynthia because she's so knowledgeable, and I'm like, yes, let's talk about taxes and net profit <laughs> and what. College if flow. we do like
0: a sneak need to go uh, to costume college, probably, maybe. Oh, the business I the panel, class. yes. Yeah, we'll get yeah, excited. 2019
2: so. costume college business panel. Yeah. Um, come in and get a reality check from <laughs> maybe USITT.
0: Are we doing something like this for USITT? I,
1: I don't know. I haven't heard... Anything on that yet? They seem like they're being slow in getting stuff together, but I think that's also just how theater is. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so mm-hmm. 90, we can, we'll have this conversation again. So. I don't know if this episode yeah. will be out in time,
2: but but we might. Important to talk about these things. I hope the guys, you guys listening, you ladies listening, um, have found this really useful. Uh, it's some of these concepts might be over your head if you're just starting, but have a listen and come back to it mm-hmm. and see. You know what you pick up from it each time, because this stuff's really invaluable. I wish I'd known these things when I got started.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> Me too. <Yeah. laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's like, to bullet point it, it's don't be afraid to charge what you're worth. Know what you are worth. Do that mm-hmm. math. Mm-hmm. And include the taxes of 15 to 20% on everything just to cover your own base. Look at
2: your uh, actual cost of living and how do you how do you not just make money from this, but how do you prosper from yeah. this?
0: You need to be able to save money yes. too. You should not yeah. be living paycheck to paycheck. And don't be afraid to charge what you're worth because it's not just about you it's about everybody else who's trying to do it too um demanding to be charged what that labor in that skill set is worth and it's worth a lot Mm -hmm. because if the apocalypse comes people gonna need clothes (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cynthia, thank you so much for thank joining us Cynthia. again. It's been wonderful. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And thank you all for listening uh, to this episode. We hope that you enjoyed it. Like Lauren said, you can always find us at americanduchess.com, blog.americanduchess.com. We're on Facebook, Instagram, also American Duchess. We also have a YouTube channel. Um, just search American Duchess. Cynthia is on uh, Instagram and Facebook too at red threaded, one word and then yep. redthreaded.com if you want some sweet-ass courses.
2: And if you really like this episode and you want us to continue doing these things and making them better, go ahead and go over to Patreon. We're on Patreon at American Duchess and give us some support um, and thank you very much for that.
0: Yeah. Right. Thanks for joining us, Cynthia. I'm Cynthia. Bye. Bye. thanks for listening to this episode of fashion history with american duchess we hope that you've enjoyed this episode as much as we did if you didn't know already we're on facebook instagram youtube and twitter all american duchess our blog is blog.americanduchess.com and our website is www.americanduchess.com you'll find links to all of these in the description below including links to our guests website and social media until next time